Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today we're talking about one of my favorite topics, EV battery recycling. And stick around after the interview, Cynthia Duraco is back with Science for the Win. What do my laptop, my phone, and my car have in common? Well, they're each objects I use every day. I'm totally reliant on each one of them for different reasons. If I really needed pizza, I could use any one of them, or all three, to manifest some pizza in my life. And finally, all three of them are battery-powered and need to be recharged. I rely on them, they rely on batteries, ergo, I rely a great deal on batteries. I rely especially on the big battery that keeps my electric car running. But despite being so dependent on it, I know embarrassingly little about how that car battery works, or what happens when it runs out of charge someday. And while I know that electric vehicles are a terrific piece of addressing the climate crisis, which is why I have one, I'm never quite sure what to say to folks who point out the human and environmental costs of mining for the materials for these batteries. Luckily for me, my colleague Jessica Dunn knows a lot about all of these topics and agreed to talk to me about them. She's a senior analyst with the Union of Concerned Scientists who specializes in lithium-ion battery sustainability, and she's excited about the potential for retired electric vehicle batteries to be reused and recycled. She and I discuss the shelf life and afterlives of EV batteries. Jess, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. You know, I get a lot of questions about electric vehicle batteries, and many of them center around what we do with these batteries when they die. So let's start first with a healthy battery. What am I getting when I buy a brand new EV? Yeah, thanks for the question. Well, you're getting a lithium-ion battery, which means basically that this is a rechargeable battery that you can use over the the 10 to 15-year lifespan that a car should be lasting. And with that, you're able to charge and discharge this battery. And throughout its life, that 10 to 15 years, you're you're usually using, you're retiring a battery that has 70 to 80% capacity. So as many of our listeners know, I'm a recent EV owner, and I have been curious about how I'll know that my battery is reaching the end of its life. That's a really good question and something that I think has been on a lot of EV owners' mind. Well, the the state of health is an indicator of how much uh, energy storage the battery can hold. So this means that, you know, when you buy a, a new vehicle, it can go, say, 100 miles on a charge, which is pretty low for an EV now, but just for the numbers' sake. And when you're going to retire that battery after 10 to 15 years, it should have about 70% capacity. So we're talking at that point, it would only have 70 miles. And that doesn't mean that you, you should retire it. It just means that typically people aren't as satisfied with the amount of miles that, that can go on a charge. And Basically, the, the EVs right now don't really demonstrate the, the battery capacity, but the miles driven and the miles that are available on one full charge are kind of an indicator of that. Right. So this is reminding me of actually the, the battery on my phone. I mean, I know when I get 
a phone over time, it's not going to hold a charge as long. It sounds similar to that. Yeah, it's very, very similar to that. And and you'll notice that the iPhones now also provide a battery capacity estimation. So they're also catching on. But at the moment, EVs don't really provide you with that capacity estimation. But it's a big barrier to having confidence in purchasing a used vehicle or even valuing a used vehicle. So this is something that should change in California. The Advanced Clean Cars 2 regulation requires that all vehicles on their dashboard have capacity in a state of health indicator starting in 2026. So so this is going to make it a lot easier for people to know the health of their battery and also for people to have confidence in buying a used car. And how will the battery state of health be determined? This is a very technical process and things such as voltage, C-rate, efficiency, and the amount of energy that's flowing in and out are some of the things that are calculated and used to determine this overall state of health, which is usually translated and communicated as the amount of capacity the battery has left. So Jess, once I've been driving my EV for, let's give it 15 years, and I'm ready to move on to my next car, what are the options for my spent EV battery? Yeah, so there's a couple different options. There's reuse and repurposing. Reuse really means that the the EV battery is taken out and put into a new EV, which usually happens when an EV hasn't been on the road for as long as 15 years. So if it failed for some other reason early on and there's still a very healthy battery there. The next is repurposing. So this is a really interesting second life usage, basically where the batteries are taken out of the electric vehicle, they're connected to other EV batteries, and then they're used as stationary storage, and they're able to provide grid services for the next five to 10 years or so. And this really requires a good state of health and a a good capacity, and also requires testing to see if the battery has that available capacity. If it doesn't, or if EV batteries have already been used throughout that repurposing life stage, then they can go to recycling. And recycling is a really efficient process. They can recover up to 95% of the materials, which is really great considering that these batteries use a lot of critical materials, including lithium, cobalt, nickel, manganese, all that have been really crucial to developing lithium ion batteries and also ones that have been been difficult to get and also have environmental impacts associated with their mining. So I want to go back for a sec. You mentioned for repurposing batteries that you can put multiple batteries together and use them to feed into the grid. So that means that old EV batteries can be used for powering everything from streetlights to your household appliances. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of different uses for stationary storage. Those include renewable energy support. So say you have a field of solar and the solar is generating during the day, midday, when energy demand might not be as high. The storage can actually store that excess energy 
and then release it in the evening when demand is higher, but the sun isn't out. So this kind of application is really crucial as we transition to a more renewable grid. And these second life batteries can replace any new batteries that would need to be manufactured. Other applications include backup power in case of outage. So, so that's something we've really seen in California when there's been these power shutoffs because of the risk of wildfires in the PG&E area. And another application, which is really interesting, is these stationary storage batteries can be used as charging stations for electric vehicles in rural areas or in areas where the grid might not be able to support excess electricity draw. So we ended up getting an EV because we we put solar panels on our house, but at the time we didn't get any battery storage for the panels. So I'm curious, is it possible now or will it be in the future to use your EV battery for backup power to your house? Yeah, the EV presents a, a huge opportunity for backup power now and in the future. So there are kind of two different ways the EV can provide power. One being uh, just through outlets on the vehicle. So this isn't true for all EVs, but the utility vehicles such as the Ford F-150 and also the Rivian vehicle have 120 and 240 outlets on them. So you can you can plug in the essentials during an outage such as a refrigerator or something of the such, um, or you could just use it as power if you're you know, going to plug in a lawnmower and use an electric lawnmower and you aren't close to your house. So that's one way of drawing the electricity out without using the grid. But the next is charging your full house or providing electricity to your house. So you have to have the right setup and you also have to have an electric vehicle that has bi-directional charging. So that basically means that you can plug your vehicle in with a charger and instead of pulling the electricity from the house and into the electric vehicle, you're basically pulling the electricity out of the battery to power your house. And as I said, this requires kind of a special charger and it also requires some changes to your house, which is true if you're going to hook up a generator to your house as well. So this is available for EVs now for some of them, such as the Nissan Leaf and the Ford F-150. But it's also something we'll see as likely be more common in, in EVs in the future. That's so cool. So if I have my EV configured properly... I'll be able to use it as a backup generator in the event of a power outage. Yeah, and it it's going to be something that will probably be pretty common for grid support as well as we transition to a higher renewable grid. So there's a lot of future opportunities for using EVs. In terms of the critical materials that we use in batteries, you were mentioning lithium, cobalt, nickel, and a few others. When you recycle the battery, can those materials be reused? Yeah, great question. They can be reused in the manufacturing of new batteries. And that is one of the great things about recycling and also the great thing about electric vehicles. So, you know, unlike the gasoline alternative, when you extract oil, it is burned and then it's gone forever. With electric vehicles, you use these materials to manufacture the batteries that power the electric vehicle. And then at the end of life, they can be recycled and they can go back into that manufacturing process into this ideal 
circular economy. And what that means is that there's less materials that need to be mined. And there's a lot of environmental benefits from that just because the recycling of materials results in such lower environmental impacts and and social impacts. And so the recovery of these materials really depends on the recycling processes that occur. So what we're seeing right now are a lot of what we call hydrometallurgical recycling, and that recovers nickel, manganese, cobalt, lithium, all in forms that that can go back into cathode production. And is this recycling happening on a large scale yet? Yeah, so it is. Outside the U.S., China and Europe have been big leaders of recycling and the development of the industry. In the U.S. here, we're seeing a couple companies that are actually have capacity at industrial scale. One in Nevada that's taking in around 20,000 metric tons per year. So there are really large scale companies recycling at this point. There's also a lot more under development. I think there's more under development at the moment than there are actually those recycling. And that's definitely a good sign, especially considering that we don't really have a large wave of EVs retiring at the moment. There's in, what was it, 2010, 2011 was when the first EV was sold. And so they were proportionally very, very small compared to what was sold at this point. And you have to wait their lifespan before you can actually recycle those materials. So we're seeing a trickle of retirements right now. And we really expect a large wave of retirements within the next 10 years. And that's going to mean that we're going to need increased recycling capacity. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript, a full bio of our guests, and additional resources, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, here are a couple of ways you can help us out. You can start by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Another way to help is to subscribe. It's free and easy. Just click on the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Now let's get back to our interview. So were there incentives for battery repurposing and recycling in the Inflation Reduction Act or or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law or maybe both? Yeah, so the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law had dedicated funds for recycling and repurposing research, development, and demonstration And so these funds were recently allocated to about 10 different projects, five of them which were specific to recycling and the development of new technologies with lower environmental impacts, with higher recovery rates, and also to just building up the capacity within the U.S. so that we can recycle our own batteries and we won't have to export them. And The other five projects were specific for repurposing and towards decreasing the costs, understanding or increasing the access to information about the state of health, increasing the ability to actually take the batteries apart 
and also to develop a lot of these demonstration projects of a repurposing facility that can either supply energy to the grid or for these other applications I mentioned, such as EV charging. So there was 73.9 million, I believe, that was allocated to those 10 projects. And there's more to come. For the Inflation Reduction Act, that bill did not include any specifics for recycling and repurposing, but it did include in the material requirements, there was requirements for a percentage of the materials to come from the U.S. And within that percentage, they included the ability to use materials that were recycled within the U.S. So that adds a little bit of an incentive to to use recycled materials in the manufacturing. And are there policies that require recycling? No, there are no policies that require recycling in the U.S., There are recycling requirements in the European Union and in China, but the U.S. has been a bit behind in implementing anything like this. We've taken kind of a different approach, I believe, and that's more towards funding research and industry development and relying more kind of on the economics of recycling which seem to be to be positive at this point just because of the high material prices for lithium ion batteries at the state level there has been more work and intrigue in including some kind of recycling policy in California there was an advisory group that was convened by um, an assembly bill in 2018 and this group was about 20 stakeholders and they were tasked with basically developing or recommending recycling policy to the legislature. And this group included stakeholders from the auto industry, from the waste industry, from the government, and also from nonprofit groups. And what they recommended was that there be a type of producer take back. So a required recycling of the batteries at the end of life, but that the manufacturers of the electric vehicles should be required to ensure that the batteries are recycled and to cover any associated costs. And this is very representative of what's happening in the EU as well and as well in China. So there's a lot of interest in seeing something like that passed in California. And while there hasn't been any bill proposed, we're thinking there might be something this year. Are there other common sense policies that you'd like to see put forth? Yeah, there are. So definitely, I think some kind of producer take back is is a good kind of policy that we, we need to see just so that we can ensure that all batteries are recycled, even if the economics don't work out. Batteries have been decreasing the amount of cobalt, which is a very high value material. And so therefore, the economics don't work out as well. And we want to make sure that even if batteries aren't economical, we still recycle them and dispose of them safely and make sure that we recover the other materials such as lithium. Other policies that I think are essential to implement include design for recycling. So this is something that we've talked a lot about in the advisory group that I mentioned before, because there's high costs with the disassembly of batteries. So there are high costs associated with taking the battery apart into smaller modules or components. 
And that is because these batteries are meant to be used in an EV and not necessarily meant to be taken apart to be repurposed or recycled. And because of that, all the models and all the electric vehicles kind of have a different setup and design. And so this has to be a manual process instead of something that's done by technology or robots. And it can also be a pretty long process. You know, some some batteries can take up to four hours to take apart. So designing a battery so that it's meant to be disassembled would be a big cost saver and would also increase the safety of this recycling and repurposing process. So another policy that I'd recommend is increasing availability of the state of health information or increasing the availability of this capacity estimate. And that is because, you know, earlier I talked about the need for knowing the state of health when the car is in use. And this is especially true for somebody who's going to be buying or selling a used car. But it's also important to know the state of health information after the battery has been removed from the car. And that's something that's really difficult to obtain because it's proprietary information of the OEM, the original equipment manufacturer. And um, there aren't really the correct connectors for a disassembler or for a repurposer to plug in and, and learn about the state of health and the estimate that is within the battery management system. So this is something that could be provided by the OEM and right now isn't. And it would be really helpful if it was. It could increase the efficiency and decrease the costs of the repurposing and also the recycling process. The last suggestion I have is to require some kind of labeling for batteries. So right now in the recycling process, it's very difficult to know what type of lithium-ion battery this is. So the positive electrode, the cathode, this is kind of the most valuable part of the battery. It contains a lot of the critical materials, such as the lithium, the nickel, the cobalt, and there's varying levels of those. So recyclers don't, without kind of some kind of labeling indicating what materials are within there, they don't know how much they should be paying for the battery or how much they should get paid for the battery if it's a lower lower value battery. So this is just an increased information and awareness that would be very essential to increasing kind of the efficiency of this process. And it is actually something that's going to be required in California starting in 2026. That seems like an incredibly easy and common sense measure to put in place. It does. And it is. Yeah, it really, really is. Well, Jess, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. This has been a really interesting conversation. And I'm happy to know that my battery is going to live on and have a happy afterlife. Yeah, thank you for having me and asking such insightful questions. Well, it's time for a good news break. At the end of every year, the Union of Concerned Scientists celebrates a few individuals and sometimes groups who've used science in some way to help people and change the world for the better. We call them science defenders, and we're hoping their stories will inspire you. In this edition of Science for the Win, you'll meet the four amazing folks we chose for 2022. Now let's welcome our winning correspondent, Cynthia Duraco to the mic to tell us about this year's Science Defenders. Thanks, Colleen. This year's Science Defenders more than live up to the title. Working around the world from Santiago, Chile to London, England, each of them uses their scientific backgrounds and training to make a difference. 
it's an honor to introduce them to you. First up, Vanessa Garcia-Polanco. She's co-director of policy campaigns for the nonprofit Young Farmers Coalition. And as a Dominican immigrant working in U.S. food policy, she is very aware of how people's perceptions of farmers and food producers differ from reality. She says, quote, We've created a pervasive and limiting idea of who gets to be a farmer in this country. And if we don't change it, every policy is going to be for that person not for the people who are actually feeding our communities, end quote. With her organization and in her personal life, Garcia Polanco advocates for land access for young and BIPOC farmers. She also created the social media campaign hashtag Food is Never Just Food and hashtag Food Justice Fridays. Check them out on your favorite platform. Moving on to Dr. Jess Wade. When she began her career as a physicist, she noticed a trend. Although women and people of color are, of course, accomplished contributors to scientific discovery and innovation, most of the keynote speakers, award recipients, and celebrated scientists she encountered were predominantly white men. Wade resolved to help get female and BIPOC scientists the recognition and opportunities they deserve. Since 2017, She's published over 1,750 Wikipedia pages about women scientists and scientists of color. Thanks in part to Wade and other editors she's trained, the percentage of English-language Wikipedia pages about women scientists has increased from approximately 17 to 19% in the past three years. That's more than 75,000 new biographies. Way to help make sure these folks are recognized, Dr. Wade. Next up is Dr. Monica Unseld. As executive director of Until Justice Data Partners, Unseld works to democratize access to science and data for regular people seeking justice. That could be environmental justice, housing justice, or holding powerful people accountable for their abuses. Anything that needs some stats or data behind it, she's got you covered. Unseld shares her expertise as a scientist with advanced degrees in biology and public health with her community in Louisville, Kentucky, and beyond. She says she's proudest of normalizing the use of data in her community to support social justice movements. She says, quote, science needs to be what society needs it to be, end quote. And our fourth science defender is Catherine Vergara, While she works on her doctorate in computer science at a university in Chile, Vergara also leads a team of female programmers to release a proprietary video game through her independent video game studio. And in her spare time, she's at STEM to Vista on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, where you can find her short Spanish language videos on science, technology, engineering, and math. She's hoping to encourage young people, girls and young women especially, to study these fields. She says, quote, information is power, and we as scientists have this power. It's important for me to give it back to people, end quote. Congratulations to each of our 2022 science defenders, and thanks to all of them for using science to improve our world. I'm Cynthia Duraco, and this has been Science for the Win. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 125,000 members of UCS 
and especially our partners for the Earth, the 13,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to defend science and help us solve the planet's most pressing problems. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. If you like the podcast, here are a couple of ways you can help us out. You can start by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Another way to help is to subscribe. It's free and easy. Just click on the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to Jess Dunn. Science for the Win was brought to you by Cynthia Duraco. Editing by Colleen MacDonald. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, stay safe, and see you next time.